This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, how's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an agricultural recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, I'd sure love to hear from you. Just drop me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This episode today is going to tie in a lot of themes you've been hearing about if you've been listening to this show, everything from farmer risk and profitability to startup life to the investor perspective on agricultural innovation. We have one guest who can speak firsthand to all of those issues, so it's pretty fun. We have on the show today Dan Cosgrove. Dan is the chief strategy officer at Grower's Edge Financial, a company that is seeking to manage the farmer risk of adopting new ideas and technologies and innovations through kind of a warranty type product. Very interesting. He's going to share more about that. But also Dan before Grower's Edge was with Corteva and he started off as legal counsel. Dan's an attorney and then went into more corporate development, business development. He's actually going to share a little bit with us about how they are looking at sort of venture capital and acquisitions and how they might look at acquiring an innovation. So we're going to get to see sort of the corporate viewpoint there. In addition to all of that, Dan is also a venture partner at Radical AgTech Acceleration Fund. Radical Growth is a well-known venture capital fund in AgTech, and Dan's going to speak to those experiences as well. So such a fun episode where we get to cover a wide range of material, all of which is going to connect very directly to some of the content you've been listening to on this show. Also, make sure you stick around all the way to the end, because not only is the content from Dan fantastic, but we also have a new miniature segment at the end of the podcast called our five minute farmer segment, where we're going to highlight one farmer that sells direct to consumers. You've heard me talk about that in the past, and we finally have one for you here today. So make sure you check that out with Gavin Spore of Spore Farms. So excited to bring to you Dan Cosgrove. Dan and I first met about a year and a half ago at the Kansas City Agribusiness Council. Dan was the speaker and blew me away. I've been wanting to get him on the show ever since and leapt at the opportunity. So here's my interview with Dan Cosgrove. All right, very pleased to have on the show today, Dan Cosgrove, Chief Strategy Officer at Grower's Edge and Venture Partner at Radical Growth. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Tim. I appreciate the call. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'd like to start. You got into agribusiness and in, in sort of a, from a different perspective. So t- tell us about kind of how how'd you get into all this? You know, I actually started off as a lawyer in, in a previous life, and I had a great time as a patent litigator at a firm here in Des Moines. But about the time when DuPont bought Pioneer, I had the opportunity to come in-house at Pioneer, and so I took that and then kind of evolved in various roles up through Pioneer, and then then it became DuPont Pioneer and now Corteva, but I have moved on from the legal side then seven, eight years ago onto the business side in business development or corporate development. And did you see that transition happening? I mean, when you made the jump into joining Dow DuPont at that time, now Corteva, did you see yourself transitioning into a role outside of just law? No, you know, that was a very hard decision. And I think in part for two reasons. First, I have a lot of attorneys, including my father, 
in our family that, that practice law. And then, of course, you go to law school and, and you mentally prepare yourself for the Perry Mason moments and to spend a lot of time in court. And when the opportunity came to move to the business side, it was a harder decision because you were leaving behind not just a previous role or, or, or a job, but a profession. But I'm really glad and pleased to have made it. It opened up a lot of opportunities for me, both in ag and outside of ag. And I very much have enjoyed the transition to the business side of agriculture. And could you talk to us a little bit about those opportunities, some of the roles that you've had from your time with Corteva? Sure. Well, you can imagine as an attorney, you tend to solve problems as they're brought to you. As a business person in a company like Corteva or any multinational ag business for that matter, it's your job to go out and make things happen. And that entails sometimes negotiating across the world, working with small companies for investments, licensing or collaborating with the technology provider that can bring a new gene or a new trait to the market. All of those were opportunities that, again, as an attorney, you might have access to one piece of it or one side of it or or maybe just the the document itself. But on the business side, you were really responsible or charged with making sure things like that happened and, and could bring value to both the company and to the farmer. You seem to have managed to be very entrepreneurial, even though you work for a very large company. How does that work? You kind of tend to think like you're either entrepreneurial or you work for a large company. How, how does one become entrepreneurial and innovative inside the confines of what has to be you know, a very corporate structure? Well, certainly the corporate bureaucracy is in existence and is there designed to kind of protect the core business. And so being an entrepreneur in a company is not unlike being an entrepreneur outside with some potential complications because you do have to fight for resources against you know the core business but i would say you know the thing that you have access to inside a, a company is a tremendous amount of access to talent there's some really smart people inside of companies like corteva and there are ideas all the time that they're coming up with that need to find a way to get to the marketplace. And, you know, so if there is a challenge, it's how do you focus on the ones that are going to have the biggest impact. And tell us more about your your newest role now, Chief Strategy Officer at, at Grower's Edge. Maybe give us a high-level view of, of both the company and, and your capacity. Sure. So, so my current role is Chief Strategy Officer for Grower's Edge. Grower's Edge is a company, as I like to say, fintech for farmers. There are you know, a lot of new technologies and products that are being offered to growers these days, but there's always a little bit of risk in adopting them. And unfortunately, farmers not only do a lot of the work, but they take a lot of the risk as well. And so if there's any way to monetize that risk or share in the risk of the farmer or grower adopting new technologies, we're trying to build fintech products or financial incentives to make that easier. A good example might be a warranty product. We, we can put together a product that says to the grower, if you take steps one, two, and three, then you will see a certain output, X. And that guarantee or that warranty can then be sold to a grower if there's any concern about adopting a new technology or you know, trying a new sustainable farming practice uh, or whatever uh, mindset or, or, or behavior that you're trying to change. So essentially, you're kind of lowering the the risk or the the barrier to to trying something new for the farmer. Is that right? 
That's definitely the hope. And so there's a lot of very good products that are or sometimes struggle with traction at the grower level, especially ones that are coming from standalone startup companies or or companies without access to you know, the main part of the market. If there was an incentive or a guarantee that they could put behind their product so that the farmer wouldn't have to risk as much in, in trying them, that becomes a really powerful tool, both for the grower, since they can try something new you know, without incurring a lot of risk, but also to that startup company that's trying to promote a new technology so they can you know, effectively get on the farm or on in the hands of growers as rapidly as possible. Hmm. And how did that opportunity come about for you? I'm sure somebody like yourself that has seen so much and been in the business at such a high level for a long time, you probably have a lot of opportunities, but how did this opportunity come to you and what, what made you excited and passionate about pursuing this one? Well, certainly there's two needs or challenges that I think farmers have today that aren't being addressed a lot. And those two challenges are risk management or risk mitigation as well as access to capital. And I was looking for ways to do my own thing in an entrepreneurial sense in those areas. But the best company I found that was already doing or already starting to tackle those challenges was Grower's Edge. And it turns out it's you know about seven minutes from my house. So it was really an opportunity to join an existing firm with quite a bit of experience rooted in crop insurance, but taking that know-how about risk mitigation uh, and the current system and using it to come up with these new and novel products to help manage some of the risk of the grower. That's great. So it wasn't just the commute time then? <laughs> it was not just the commute time, no. although <laughs> that's certainly nice. <laughs> that's great. Is the company commercially still already putting out products or what stage of development is the company in? So this will be, we're closing out our second year now. The first year and most of the second year, uh, the products were focused still on the insurance products. As we transition now to these private warranty and guarantee products, that'll start in earnest this coming year. And then I, I hope to address or to build on that by creating new ways for farmers to gain access to capital, not just to buy those new technologies, but really to get access to cheaper forms of cash or capital for all of their input purchases. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how those tools get developed because I, I do, I see the need there definitely, especially, I mean, in terms of risk management, it's such a, it's such a risky business and, you know, theoretically get one shot a year. I think a lot of people don't understand kind of the immense risk that is inherent into that. The interplay between that risk that you just mentioned, the, the one shot a year, maybe 40 shots across your lifetime, if you can provide a way to smooth that out or help monetize that risk and move it to somebody else, that's a win. And then building from there, it, it makes sense that if you can come up with a way to make a farm or a farm operation less risky, it becomes a much better target for lending or credit. And so I truly believe that you can solve these two problems. They complement each other very nicely. And our business, hopefully going forward, will build on both as we come up with these new fintech products for farmers going forward. Yeah, and I, and I just think about too, and this get, maybe is getting a little bit more head in the clouds, which I tend to do, but the feedback loop that you can sort of accelerate if, if, if you're lowering the barrier to risk to, to try new things in general, you can kind of push the industry forward, I think, by, by taking a little bit more risk. Well, that's definitely the hope. I mean, it, the ag industry 
you know, there's not very many places to work that bring you the rewards that, you know, feeding the world can bring. But it's also uh, under a tremendous amount of economic stress right now. Obviously, you've got the macroeconomics of, you know, global trade and the sheer declining profitability of a farm operation is something that needs to be addressed. But these farm operations themselves are, are small businesses with really hardworking people. If we can direct some solutions their way, I think it'll help everybody overall. Right. Yeah. I love the focus on profitability. I mean, there's there's been billions and billions and billions of dollars poured into efficiency, which which is great. But if I'm a farmer right now, you know, part of me is kind of thinking, well, with all this investment in making us the low cost provider, it isn't always helping the bottom line. So I, I think that's a, a really neat approach and, and a very, very needed focus. We had Sid Gorham on recently, I think you know, talking about the granular acquisition by Corteva, kind of from his perspective. I would love to hear any thoughts you can share from your perspective about sort of how all that deal developed and in, in your role in the process. Yeah, Sid's a great guy, unbelievably smart, and not a small part of why the company was really attracted to granular as an acquisition. Obviously, a lot of that happened behind the wall that I, I can't share, but but what I can share is this. There were three parts of Granular that we were really attracted to as the digital strategy of Corteva was coming into shape. You know, certainly the team that Sid had put together was outstanding. And, you know, we we're really pleased to keep Sid on board. And I'm sure even though I don't see him much and, and, and don't, uh, don't speak a lot with my, my friends at Corteva much right now, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out going forward, especially under Sid's direction. The second thing we really liked about the granular acquisition was the, the technology itself. You know, we looked at a, a lot of things in the same space. We really liked how that one was set up. And we, you know, if you evaluated all the possible options out there, including, you know, b- making it yourself, granular was, you know, head and shoulders above the alternatives that we saw. And then finally, you know, the location. We we are obviously very strong in the Midwest. The, the new Corteva organization will be in Iowa and Indiana. But if you're going to plant your digital flag somewhere, San Francisco looked like a really good spot to plant it. And so with, with those three things, location, the technology they have, and, and the talent that Sid and his team brought, you know, it was a, a, a real good acquisition, in my opinion, to make. It wasn't easy because it was happening around the same time as our, our large merger between Dow and DuPont. But I'm really excited at the potential that, that that group and the granular product brings to that organization. Yeah, and I, and I can echo your comments on the team, too. And they have sponsored the show in the past. They're not sponsoring this episode, so I don't have to say this. But I have been blown away by the talent that they have, the people that I've worked with there uh, through through setting up that interview and others that we've worked together on. It really is a top-notch organization. Curious, on, on your end, so were you part of the, the, the corporate VC within Corteva? Yeah, so Corteva's efforts at the time were very targeted. There were some things we invested in because we wanted to be an investor in a technology or a trait that for one reason or another, we we didn't want to internalize. We also participated a lot in both Cultivian Sandbox in Chicago, as well as the Radical Growth in San Diego, which I'm a venture partner of. And then, of course, we had things that you know eventually evolved to full-on acquisitions like the granular purchase we just discussed. Corporate venture capital is much different than than you know more traditional or financial venture capital in that you always have a, a heavy strategic component. I'm not going to say that the normal venture doesn't. They all they all have a thesis, 
But corporate venture capital really is looking for stuff not just to make a financial return, but to invest in things that that maybe it wouldn't be investing in internally or to maybe test some things out there that we're not quite ready for spending our own money on. And, and how does that work in practice as far as if, you, if you're part of a corporate venture capital team and you invest in a company, how are those strategic benefits realized? Is it an information share along the way? Is it only if the, if the, the corporation were to eventually acquire all of that company? You know, how, how are sort of those strategic objectives realized? You know, it really does vary by deal, Tim. I think you've got uh, opportunities where you make an investment and that's it. And, and maybe there's some exchange. Uh, and I will say our folks internally at, at Corteva at the time were always really engaged and enjoyed working with startups. Uh, one of the more enjoyable aspects of the corporate venture role, actually, was to, to engage in that, you know, versus your quote unquote day job. But it was it was a it was a fun part of, of of people's role. Sometimes we made an investment and and they used things internally to the corporation to help them scale. Uh, maybe we had access to production plants or uh, field tests or greenhouse capacity that they could use as a startup without needing to you know spend their capital on 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 things like that. And sometimes we actually made an investment and got something back right away. We maybe made an investment and got an option for a license, or 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 maybe you make an investment and you you do have that science exchange where you you both move forward. But it really varied by by the deal. And I think that's generally true really across the board. There are there are some that that fit in almost as a pure financial with with a limited strategic aspect and some are almost all strategic and you're working with the company that for all practical purposes it's a collaboration agreement it's just that there's equity involved. Yeah. I would think that'd be a little bit tricky from a valuation perspective of how how exactly do you how do you quantify the value of the strategic benefits? Well, valuation at a, at a venture level is always really difficult. It's difficult for a lot of reasons, not, not the least of which being it's so early and there's always a lot of uncertainty involved, especially when you're dealing with things with some sort of technical unknown, like a, a trait or a gene. And so that was always a challenge. One of the um, drivers behind corporate venture capital is, you know, usually you're not the only investor in that entity and, and, and there are financial venture firms that are alongside you or maybe before you in the investment, you tend to rely on those folks to help you value that entity in addition to seeing how it could help you internally. So valuation is always a challenge. We are helped over that hurdle a little bit by the fact that we're trying also for that strategic return I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, that, that might help break some ties if you weren't sure you're going to invest or not based on the valuation. But if it made st- sense strategically, uh, you, could, you could jump right in. Well, you, you give me hope, Dan, that, that all of these things I'm passionate about and ambitious of, I can still get done because you have somehow managed to do all this interesting work with Corteva and become a venture partner at Radical and now off to this uh, entrepreneurial venture. So I, I'm excited to dig into this more, but, but let's start with the venture partner at, at Radical Growth. How did that come about? I, I know you'd mentioned uh, earlier you had been working with them a little bit, but, but tell us how that came about and, and what your role looks like now. Sure. So, so Kirk Haney is the primary managing director of Radical Growth. And, you know, it was formed with a few of us strategic partners. 
And in that investment where we gave a commitment for a certain amount of capital, we participated obviously in the deal flow that Kirk had put together and continues to put together. As that goes on, as I mentioned, sometimes the more fun conversations are with those startups and how to give them access to your scientists or your greenhouses or your field trials. You know, long story short, Kirk and I worked together well enough in that aspect of the of the radical growth effort that he just asked me to become a a venture partner, which you know I I've enjoyed a lot. You get to see a lot of early stage companies and sometimes solving challenges that you didn't even know were a problem, but you get access to super passionate entrepreneurs. And again, it's been a it's been a really fun aspect of of my career over the past. Uh, you know, four or five years. Hmm. And and for deal flow, is that part of your responsibility or your role, I guess, to go out there and, and scour the country for the, the right investments? Or is that something that comes from Kirk and his team and you as partner kind of look at that deal flow as it comes comes through? Well, Kirk and Rebecca at uh, Radical Growth are outstanding at generating deal flow. And what they use me for primarily is to kind of bounce some of these deals off of, does this market make sense? Is that a problem that you've tried to solve in the past? How easy or not is this from a technical perspective? You know, those are questions uh, that then help them whittle down from, let's say, a thousand deals a year to a handful, where then we can do some some deeper diligence. And again, back at at Corteva, you know, one aspect of our role with the Radical was to pair them up with subject matter experts internally if we could help them do diligence. You can imagine a lot of these areas of technology are very specific, uh, and no one person can be expected to know them all. But again, we would connect some of our internal really smart scientists with some of these startups, which was a a total win-win. You know, number one, our folks loved it. And two, we helped Kirk get a really good view on the technology chances of success related to some of the startups that he's looking at. What what advice can you give a potential startup that's listening, you know, just with bated breath right now, because they would love to be the next uh, startup that that gets an investment from from a group like Radical. What advice would you have as far as positioning themselves for success when it comes to seeking investment? Well, one thing I would say is try to engage with someone like Kirk or another venture firm as early as possible. These are folks that see a lot of deals and they see deals that are great and they see deals that aren't as great. They are happy to tell you sometimes, you know, in a very straightforward way, what you need to get to the next level. Some might view that as criticism, but it is input uh, and it's feedback. And you should take that feedback from everybody you talk to and learn a little bit of something, even if they don't invest. But I would, I would try to engage with someone like Kirk and even find someone in that space as a mentor or an advisor to help you. Because it's not an area where a lot of people have a lot of exposure to. If you can find someone that has had an exit or two or three in their history and they're willing to spend any time with you, I would definitely do that because they will not only help position your company for that future investment, if that's the route you want to take, but also just help you get comfortable with what can be be a very new and uncomfortable process for a lot of folks if you haven't done it in the past. What keeps you, Dan, what keeps you kind of interested in doing this and engaged? I mean, why does this excite you? You've had the chance to, like I said, do so much. What gets you constantly excited to, to do what you do repeatedly? One of the things that really drove me to kind of reach out and look for something new and different to do was the opportunity to maybe build something 
as opposed to run something. You know, it's a totally different skill set. And quite frankly, I think a lot harder. You're taking risks and trying things in the marketplace and getting in front of customers and growers and and you're you're dealing with a lot of exciting ups and maybe some not exciting downs. And it was just time in my career to try something and try to make a, a bigger impact on ag. And again, I, I really did think, you know, for the past year or two that dealing with the issues of risk management uh, and access to capital is one that just isn't being addressed as much as some of these other areas uh, of, of ag and, and, and technology advancement in, uh, in our area. So I was excited when, when the leadership at, at Grower's Edge, Billy Rose and Joe Young reached out after they heard I was leaving. And, you know, I joined about a month after I left Cordova. So again, I'm super excited about our opportunities going forward. And I, I know the transition has been recent, but, but so far, what's standing out to you as far as where you're needing to shift your own skill set, your own mindset or focus? Well, it, there's no doubt that life in a startup is different than life in a multinational corporation. You know, from things like running your own printer or, or fixing your own printer to fixing your computer to, to going out there and, and making stuff happen in the, at the grower level, at investor levels, et cetera, it's all on you. It's almost existential in what they're asking you to do and keep the company going and raise more money. And so, again, it's, it's, I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but you come into work at a startup and you grind away and the day's gone before you know it. And you, you, you have what I call maybe the flow. You're working really hard. It's really exciting. And then all of a sudden, five o'clock is there and you're like, wow, now I just have a few more hours of work to do before I get to go home. Yeah, I could definitely relate to that. Everything from like, you know, you have to you have to set the strategy, call the customers, fix your computer, take out the trash and, you know, also try to get something planned for the next day. <laughs> it is uh, it's it's a constant demand on on your time and attention for sure. Just looking at, you know, Grower's Edge and, and strategically, I know you said kind of looking at rolling out more products that go beyond just sort of the the insurance focus. What What's kind of high priority for you that the problems you're tackling right now that try to get the company to the next level? Well, certainly as we transition to our new private guarantee or warranty products, that's that's uh, the first priority that we have. We're also, you know, as any startup is, you're always in a potential fundraising mode and that's uh, also taking up quite a bit of time. We have a lot of opportunities though going forward and, and there's a constant balance with the focus on on the product or two today versus how much do you, do you focus on the potential future upside? That's a tough balance, especially when you have limited resources like a startup typically has. But it's, it's exciting. And it, again, it's much different than in a, in a large corporation, not better or worse, but, but different. And every day is an adventure in a startup. So uh, you are a jack of all trades. And again, it's, it's been a very, very exciting couple of months for me. Excellent. And just broadly speaking, obviously, we've talked a lot about the risk management component, but what else related to the future of agriculture as you look in this industry in the next you know, decade, what do we need to be focusing on? What comes top of mind that, that are either most concerning or most exciting from an opportunity standpoint when you look at the future of this industry? Well, certainly, I think risk mitigation and financing or credit has the potential for a lot of changes or, or advancements. One area that I'm not in, but I'm anxious to see how it plays out, is kind of at the other side of the value chain. The on-farm grain bin capacity across the U.S. is going through the roof. And what's going to happen as those grain bins get 
connected as farmers get closer to the end user, as technologies allow communication between farmers, you know, how is that going to impact the food chain or the, the channel? Eventually, that's all headed to the, you know, the whole blockchain of agriculture or the Amazonification of agriculture. I'm not sure how that's going to get there, but, but shorter term, it, it's that kind of close the aspect of, of the farming operation from gathering the grain to putting it in the hands of the end user that's, I think, very exciting from a, a disruption standpoint. Great. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. That was fantastic. It's not every day we get someone who's got a perspective of law, you know, large corporate agribusiness, corporate venture capital, outside of corporate venture capital, and entrepreneurship. So what a great confluence of uh, themes that we like to have on the show, all wrapped up in one episode. Appreciate you being on here. If somebody's interested in the work you're doing, either at Radical Growth or at Grower's Edge, is there a good place we can direct people to try to connect with you? You know, I think the best way to connect with me is via LinkedIn. It's something that, you know, people always check, but certainly you can also email me at my, at my Growers Edge email, which is dan.cosgrove at growersedge.com. Dan, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thanks, Tim. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Dan Cosgrove for being on the show. I really enjoyed that. Such a treat to get somebody who's had uh, those types of experiences to shape their outlook on agriculture and the future of agriculture. I'm also just very fascinated to watch Growers Edge grow and roll out some of their product mix and see how that works to accelerate the amount of innovation and adoption that we might see in agriculture by sort of managing that risk component. So thanks again for Dan for being on the show. I really, really do appreciate that. It's now time for the very first uh, segment that I am calling Five Minute Farmer. This is a five minute profile of a producer, farmer, or rancher that is choosing to sell at least some of their harvest direct to consumer. Now, you may ask why direct to consumer, and, and that's for a few reasons. Number one, I was looking for a way that I could give some airtime on this show, some attention we've been blessed to have to a producer doing great things in a way that might directly benefit them. And when I say directly benefit, I mean a direct response saying, hey, if you like what you hear, go to this website and buy it now. And you could do that whether you're a producer, uh, we're all consumers, right? Uh, number two, I just think it's interesting content. Uh, these individuals are, are choosing to think outside the box a little bit with their marketing and value add in a way that captures theoretically more value for themselves by going direct. Number three, I think there's reasons to be bullish on the future of direct to consumer agriculture. I'm not saying that everyone's going to go to farmers markets or community supported agriculture. Those avenues are fantastic if you're close to an urban center. But I think through technology, things like the Amazon marketplace, perhaps autonomous vehicles, last mile logistics innovations, there is reason to believe that more farmers, even those not close to an urban center, may have opportunities in the future for some element of direct to consumer. And I want to start highlighting those stories on this show. Our very first five-minute farmer is Gavin Spore of Spore Farms. Gavin grew up in the country in Missouri, but not on a farm. His parents were not farmers. He can remember looking out his window at an early age, watching farm equipment, and dreaming of one day working in agriculture. Well, he didn't wait very long because at the age of 19, he was given the opportunity to cash rent six acres of farmland that he planted in soybeans. He started to grow what he hopes will become his farming empire. We got really, really lucky. We Tons of rain. The crop did awesome. And I actually made enough off of that six acres. I was able to put a down payment on my first tractor. 
And then I picked up a few more acres through that winter. And I was figuring out that, man, corn and soybean prices are not where they need to be for me to pay my bills. So I started thinking about a specialty crop. And see, I'm also a full-time college student at the University of Missouri, about an hour away from home. So I didn't have time to sit by a vegetable stand all summer and fall and, you know, sell vegetables because of my busy schedule. So I thought maybe popcorn would work because it's got a long shelf life and I can use similar equipment to what I was using for corn and soybeans. So I did some research and kind of contacted some other popcorn producers across the United States and kind of just went out on a limb and I planted 15 acres of it last year. And that's really what I've been running with and what I'm pushing hard on social media. Uh, I'm trying to pay my bills and pay for college, but I also want to educate the consumer about where their food comes from. Well, with just 15 acres of popcorn and uh, the beginnings of some social media accounts, Gavin started spreading the word through not only social media, through a website, and through good old-fashioned uh, door-to-door salesmanship and word-of-mouth. I just, I actually got Facebook last year. It's the first time I had Facebook, and the only reason I got it is so I could make a business page. You have to have a personal page to make a business page. And uh, I, I started making a video once a week at, you know, after church on Sunday, I would just go out to the popcorn field and make a video and it would get some shares and some likes. And then I would also post heavily on Instagram. A good friend of mine at college, we're in the same class. He made me a website. So he's got a website set up with an online store I'm able to market through. And then it was just going door to door to grocery stores and local stores, uh, wondering if they would be interested in this product once I had it market ready. And there was a lot of interest. So we've kind of just ran from it. And really at the rate that I'm going, it's surprising myself even. I've got big dreams for it, but it's going very well. Gavin was off to a strong start, but it wasn't all perfect. He had to face some of the same challenges other farmers face with Mother Nature. We we had a, uh, a windstorm come through last summer and it knocked a lot of it down. I posted a video of this popcorn crop. I had almost half of my crop was laying flat on the ground. I thought it was a complete loss. And I posted this Facebook video and uh, it it got, I don't know how many shares and and a local news network actually picked it up. And that's when people realized there's a young kid growing popcorn in the area. And like I said, I I thought it was a complete loss, but it wasn't. The ear was actually mature enough that once it dried down, me and my younger brother and a crew of high school kids, we went out there and we picked a lot of it on the ear. And uh, I've been selling quite a few of it directly on the ear. You put it in the microwave and it pops right off the cob. So We picked about 3,000 ears, and then uh, with the combine, what we were able to combine, because we were able to pick most of it up. It was just, it was kind of a hassle. It It was a nasty harvest. But I ended up, when it was all cleaned and all said and done, I had 652 50-pound bags off of 15 acres. So... The, the, it's about 32,000 pounds. So I, I, I've been selling it through the winter and I've got quite a bit to sell through the summer here before next harvest rolls around. So despite the windstorm setback, Gavin and uh, his crew that he has hired to help him do a lot of this work have been able to overcome and still have a lot of popcorn left to sell. In fact, Gavin's already into his next season where he is expanding from his 15 acres from last year up to almost 40. It will be... Depending on how the ground lays, it'll be between 35 and 40 acres. So uh, quite a bit of an increase, but there's some trees surrounding these fields. So uh, last year, one of the fields I had was irrigated, a a seven-acre corner off of a larger field from a local farmer. And uh, the stuff I have this year is not irrigated. So I'm planning on having about 100,000 pounds total off of this 40 acres. 
So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. That's a whole lot of popcorn to get sold while still being in college. If you're energized by Gavin's story as I am and like to help him move some of this popcorn, go to sporefarms.com. It's S-P-O-O-R farms, F-A-R-M-S dot com. And you can buy some there. They have all different price points. I think you'll find something that's probably, you know, worth your while to order to have shipped directly to your house if you're in the U.S. I'm not sure about abroad, but for sure anywhere in the U.S., you can go buy some of Gavin's popcorn. Just a, a great story of someone putting themselves through college by farming and selling direct to consumers. But for Gavin, it's not all just about the money. Really, one of my favorite things is doing uh, elementary school visits or, or SFA chapter visits. I've got a small presentation and I'll, uh, I'll teach the kids about popcorn. I'll show them some pictures of the operation. And there's about 20 minutes of crazy questions I get from them. And it's, it's a great learning opportunity. Very cool. Well, again, if you'd like to support Gavin or you'd like to just buy some farm fresh popcorn or if uh, you just want to support this show, highly encourage you to go to Spore Farms, S-P-O-O-R-F-A-R-M-S dot com and buy some Gavin's popcorn. I'm also just curious what you think about this, this five-minute farmer segment. It gives you a direct way that you can support the future of agriculture by supporting these producers. I think it's interesting content, interesting stories, but it does take a lot of time to produce, similar to the experiment we did last fall with Follow-Up Fridays. I want it to be worthwhile for you. I love having these conversations. I love making these episodes, but if it's not something you're enjoying, it's important for me to know that as well. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I hope you'll support Gavin and look forward to more five-minute farmer segments. But let me know on Twitter at Tim Hamrich via email tim at agrad.com. What are your thoughts on this show and the five-minute farmer segment? Thanks so much. We'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music